Another evangelical leader cannot keep his pants on. Dutch and Canadian Parliament declares China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims a genocide. Malcolm X's family pushes for his murder case to be reopened. And GameStop Short Squeeze Part 2. Welcome to the Pastor Max Show. Over the last 10 days, news has come out about Mr. Ravi Zacharias. Now, Ravi Zacharias is an Indian uh, Canadian American who was an apologist. He founded the RZIM uh, ministry, which has been uh, a prolific apologetics ministry around the world. Ravi traveled around the world. And Ravi, to me, was really a personal idol until the last two weeks. When I went through philosophy uh, courses, most of my professors were not Christian. Most of my classmates were not Christian. And I could always turn to Ravi for some good philosophical uh, truth. And unfortunately, allegations have surfaced uh, after his death, and he actually died last year from cancer, that he was a scumbag just like what feels like almost every other evangelical leader there is. Why can't evangelical leaders keep their pants on? Is it really that difficult? Well, let's talk about what allegations came out against Ravi. First of all, this is all coming from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. They conducted an independent investigation. They hired a company to research these three main allegations. And what they found was absolutely disgusting. For example, Ravi Zacharias frequently traveled to both local here in the United States and also abroad massage therapist and solicited them for extra massage therapy, if you know what I'm saying. In fact, they found over 200, 200, I don't even have 200 contacts in my phone. They found over 200 massage therapist contacts in his phone, including many who knew him by a pseudonym. Now, this investigation is disgusting. I'm glad that they did an investigation, but it elicits a reaction in me that is angry. These people that we are putting in charge of nonprofit ministries, universities, if you remember the Jerry Falwell incident from this past summer, disgusting. We're putting them in front of TVs. We're giving them book deals and they can't even keep their pants on. What in the world has to give with all of these leaders being unable to withhold their sexual desires. Well, I think that this answer is is really not as difficult as many people are trying to make it out to be. First and foremost, when there's an extortionist claim, you should probably check into it. Now, R-V-I-Z, or, or excuse me, R-Z-I-M, Mr. Zacharias's uh, nonprofit that he found, several years ago was approached by a Canadian woman named Lori Ann Thompson. Ms. Thompson accused him of engaging in sexually explicit online conversations, soliciting and receiving many indecent photos, 
She claimed that he groomed her as she gained as he gained her trust as a spiritual guide, confidant, and a notable Christian statesman. After which she opened up her life to him to the point where he exercised a controlling influence over her, not just physically, but with spiritual authority. Now, the organization was notified on April 27, 2017. Mrs. Thompson and her lawyers sent Ravi, Ravi Zacharias a letter demanding $5 million in exchange for the, a release of claims against him and the ministry. Now, what happened in response to this? Well, in response to this, Mr. Zacharias sued the Thompsons in federal court for extortion under the Federal Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Statute, which is the RICO statute, on July 31st, 2017. The Thompsons and Mr. Zacharias mediated and confidentially resolved their disputes in late fall 2017. Now, this resolution reportedly included a non-disclosure agreement. RZIM management informed us in this investigative report that they were told about Mrs. Thompson's allegation, and this is why they did not research it. Three reasons. One, Mrs. Thompson's allegations were not investigated because of the non-disclosure agreement. Two, Mr. Thompson's allegations were not investigated because Mr. Zacharias claimed he was victim of an extortionist. And three, Mr. Zacharias's response to the Thompson allegations, including explanations of his emails with Ms. Thompson that had surfaced on the internet, were ignored. How do we have organizations in the world in 2021 that do not investigate sexual misconduct claims? How does that happen? And how as Christians are we supposed to trust those who are put in leadership positions when they can't even trust themselves? I think of Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was the founder of Willow Creek Church in Chicago suburbs. Now, Willow Creek is no small church. It's a church that's expanded exponentially. If you're from this area, you've probably heard of Willow Creek. If you're from the Chicago area, you've definitely heard of Willow Creek. Now, Mr. Hybels was set to retire, and six months before he retired, allegations surfaced about him again soliciting inappropriate massages and sexual misconduct to the point where Bill Hybels went out on a boat with a co-worker on Lake Michigan by themselves. Look, I love my church. I love the people on my church. But there ain't nobody I'm going to be on a boat with that ain't my wife. That's just common sense. We're talking about a common sense level of protection. I used to always, my dad would try and strike fear in me when he knew I was going to be a pastor. My dad's been in the church his whole life and he's seen this happen on the local level twice. And he tells me of two times, one time it was an elder and one time it was a pastor. And he talked about how he would speak to these people after the fact and how they would be in insurance or they'd be doing something else that wasn't um, Christian ministry. 
And they literally destroyed their lives, the church's life, and everyone else's life because they could not keep their pants on. Now, I wish it was as simple as saying, hey, go to Ross Dress for Less, buy a 1099 belt. But unfortunately, belts can become undone. So what do we have to do as a church? And more specifically, how can you at your home, at your job, encourage a uh, culture that is not allowing these type of things to happen? First of all, we have to quit watching porn. Notice that I said we. I don't mean we as in our church, but we as a Christian church. Listen to these statistics about pornography in the church. It is absolutely mind-blowing. There are about 42 million porn websites, which totals of about 370 million porn pages. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. 47% of families in the United States report that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. Let me say that this way. If you use pornography, you are 300% more likely to have an affair or an extramarital relationship in your marriage. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. I remember my first exposure. It was sixth grade. I was walking around the track and Taylor Pendleton came around. And I know this name because it was such a distinct moment in my life. He came around and he told all of us in the friend group what he had done the night before. And of course, all of us in our friend group, we go home, we sneak on our computers, and we go to this website that he told us to, and bam, the first experience with pornography, sixth grade. This is common. If you have children that are watching Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook videos or YouTube videos, they're only one click away from something inappropriate. In fact, 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. What about Christian leaders? It actually gets worse if you look at Christian leaders. 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Let me repeat that. 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis 50 percent. that means that of all the pastors you've ever had let's say you've had 10 pastors in your life five of them watch porn on a regular basis are we really surprised that people like ravi zacharias jerry falwell tully into vision the list goes on and on Are we really surprised that these leaders are engaging in sexually sexual misconduct if we make the assumption based off these statistics that half of them are viewing porn on a regular basis? This isn't what we were supposed to be as Christians, but unfortunately, we don't talk about it. 
57% of pastors say that porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% of those pastors say that porn has adversely impacted the church. Seven out of 10 pastors believe that pornography has adversely impacted the church. And here's the the statistics that is the most mind-blowing. Only 7% of pastors say their church has a program to help people struggling with pornography. 7%. This is, in my opinion, the greatest pandemic facing the church today. While COVID-19 has not been a positive experience for the church, I can tell you that more than 50% of people who regularly attended church are coming back to church. But those 50% of pastors, how much more porn are they watching after COVID? What about these new applications? OnlyFans? For those of you who don't know what OnlyFans is, OnlyFans is basically a pay-per-view personal video, I don't even know how to explain it, it's like a pay-per-view personal webcam where both men and women make an account and they sell either explicit videos or explicit photos via subscriptions. They can say a one month fee, you get all my videos, or they sell them on on a per image basis In either case, my personal's best friend's mom told him she was thinking about selling pictures of her feet on OnlyFans. This is how widespread OnlyFans has become. In fact, I know of someone else who was a young woman who also participated on OnlyFans. This isn't just a male or a female thing. This is an entirety of the church. So what are we going to do about it? We've got to start addressing it. And I think it begins with the top of our nation. Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden all have credible accusations of sexual assault against them. Think about that. Three out of the last five presidents all have credible accusations of sexual assault against them. This week, another allegation came against an American politician. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, one of his former aides has now come out saying that she she was sexually assaulted. Are we going to listen Or are we going to treat this topic as a partisan topic? Is it only bad when Donald Trump molests someone? Or is it bad when anyone gets molested? We have such a partisan world. It's left versus right, conservative versus liberal. And that has seeped its way into the church. And I feel the same way about racism. We have a white church, a black church, a Latino church. But truthfully, we have one church in Jesus Christ. We are one people in the United States. And we are allowing our sexual desires to take over at such a rapid pace 
where 50% of our most moral individuals are pastors. These are the people who are supposed to be the most moral individuals. 50% of them have dark secrets in their closet. I'm not saying that these secrets disqualify these pastors from being good Christians, faithful Christians to their Lord. But what I am saying is that if we allow this problem to persist in the church and in your own life, you're going to have problems. One of the biggest challenges about getting married at a younger age in our in my generation is that so many of my colleagues are addicted to pornography that even if they wait till marriage, even if they 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 cross that finish line, they don't have a healthy sexual relationship with their partner. The stuff you see on there is not normal. That is not how God intended our sexual intimacy to be. We have to speak about it. We have to call out anyone and everyone, even if they're university presidents, even if they founded uh, organizations that I even wanted to work for. I've applied for jobs at Ravi Zacharias's organization. No matter the situation, we have to call abuse, abuse. Because if we don't as Christians then we're going to have a repeat of what we saw in history. The famous quote, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat itself, holds true. In fact, just this week, Canada and Dutch Parliament signed basically motions. They were non-binding motions, meaning these weren't laws, but it was basically them making a formal statement that what the... Uh, what is happening to the Uyghur Muslim minority in China amounts to genocide. Genocide. Now, the Dutch parliament, this is the first move by a European country, and I hope that more countries make this move, but I never thought we would see genocide in the news so flippantly. World War II was, in my opinion, the ugliest stain on the 20th century. Now, there were some ugly stains. You had Vietnam. You had, uh, you know, the Watergate scandal. You had World War I, the Spanish flu. You had all sorts of things happen in, in the 20th century. But nothing amounts to the killing of the, the mass systematic killing of Jews in World War II Nazi Germany. If you research deeper about how Nazi Germany got to that point, you're going to see that the church played a massive role in allowing the Nazis to commit their genocide, both Catholics and Protestant. The German church at the time was divided was mainly Protestant, and it was the German evangelical church that that uh, held this majority role. And within this church, there was literally a split of pastors who were pro-Nazi and anti-Nazi. The most famous that we know is D. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was outspoken vehemently against the Nazi uh, regime. He paid for it with his life. But for all the pastors who weren't against the Nazi regime, how are they going to answer to God for that? How do you answer to God for not speaking up when an entire people group is being wiped from the face of the earth? I don't know. The Catholic Church has some even deeper questions to answer, in my opinion. Did you know the Vatican was the first state to officially recognize the leadership of Adolf Hitler? On July 20th, 1933, they signed a concordat between the Vatican and the German Reich. This concordat was the first formal acknowledgement of the Nazi leadership in Germany. Now you may say to me, well, in 1933, we didn't know what they were going to do. I disagree. Why do I disagree? Because Mein Kampf was published in 1925. Hitler's most famed book. In fact, without Mein Kampf, Hitler does not rise to the power that he ended up rising to. It was a crucial role. And listen to this quote found in Mein Kampf. With satanic joy in his face, the black-haired Jewish youth lurks in wait for the unsuspecting girl whom he defiles with his blood, thus stealing her from the people. With every means he tries to destroy the racial foundations of the people he has set out to subjugate. Just as he himself systematically ruins women and girls, he does not shrink back from pulling down the blood barriers for others, even on a large scale. It was and it is Jews who bring Negroes into the Rhineland, always with the same secret thought and clear aim of ruining the hated white race by necessarily resulting bastardization. This was written in 1925. He is calling the Jewish youth. The youth. Do you really think your 15-year-old child has thoughts more complex than what girl he's going to ask out to homecoming next year? And, and Hitler's making an argument that the youth are so not just evil, but satanic, that they are trying to disrupt the bloodline of the Rhineland, which the Rhineland was more than just Germany. This goes into Bohemia and the Czech Republic. This extends um, into Austria. The Rhineland was being destroyed in Hitler's mind by a Jewish boy who wanted to ask a girl out, get married to a girl, and create babies with this girl. He calls that satanic. And he goes a step further and says it's the same one who's bringing Negroes into the Rhineland. That's a whole nother discussion. So how in the world did the Roman church in 1933, eight years after that book was published, acknowledge Hitler as leader? Well, the answer is geopolitical. The Catholic Church was afraid of another world war. Keep in mind the 15 years between 1918 and 1933, here's the events that unfolded. One, we had World War I. World War I was 
much more atrocious than World War II in terms of the war style. World War II, spends, we spend a lot of time learning about World War II due to the Holocaust, which is perfectly good. But sometimes World War I loses its uh, esteem. I think if you're wondering what it was like in World War I, a great movie is a movie that came out last year called 1917. The great part about this movie is they shot this movie with one cinematic role, meaning they used one camera the entire time, one roll of camera the entire time. And what it gives you is it gives you a feel of being there. It's a two-hour movie. It's a great movie, but be prepared to be shocked. The trench warfare of World War I was the scariest place I could ever imagine being. Following up World War I was the Spanish flu. Did you know that millions of people died in the Spanish flu? In fact, so many people died in the Spanish flu that some historians attribute the Spanish flu as being the main reason why World War I came to an end. The Spanish flu infected around 500 million people and killed somewhere in between 25 and 39 million people. The entire state of Illinois dead in an instant. We follow up the Spanish flu with a period in at least in American history of prosperity and wealth. The common man was gaining wealth. The common man was able to invest. And then you have Black Tuesday, the Great Depression. The world felt the grip of debt. They could not pay on their debt. The economy tanked. Banks at the time were very much blamed for this. And in Germany, most of the banks or a majority of the big banks were owned by Jews. And so Hitler was using the Jews as a scapegoat to blame for the devastation of World War I, the Spanish flu, the Treaty of Versailles, which absolutely demolished Germans, uh, the German military um, influence at the time. And so the Vatican in the name of peace, signed the Concordat with the Nazis. So how does what does this have to do with the Uyghur Muslims? Will we allow this to happen? We know what's happening with the Uyghur Muslims. We don't have to uh, question what's happening like they did in the 30s because we have the internet. We have massive amounts of information. And in my research, this is what I found. The Uyghurs are a Turkic, Turkic ethnic group originating from Central and Eastern Asia. They are recognized as being native to the region of China. They are from, but the Chinese government only recognizes them as a regional minority. In other words, outside of their region, they hold no value in the eyes of the Chinese government. There's an estimated 80% of Uyghurs 
that still live in this basin or region that they began. There's an estimated about 13.5 Uyghur Muslims in the world today. Now, why are they being targeted? The Chinese government maintains its actions are justifiable as responses to a threat of extremism and terrorism. China's treatment of the Uyghurs have been condemned by the U.S. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took aim to China over its policies and even used the phrase crimes against humanity. Pompeo said in a statement, After careful examination of the available facts, I have determined that since at least March 2017, China, under the direct and control of the Chinese Communist Party, has committed crimes against humanity against the predominantly Muslim, Uyghurs, and other members of ethnic and religious minority groups. The Dutch government says the same thing. The Canadian government says the same thing. In 2018, a British broadcasting channel news report showed satellite imagery and claimed that hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs were in internment camps. In 2019, a New York Times article reported that human rights groups and Uyghur activists said that the Chinese government was using technology from U.S. companies and researchers to collect DNA from Uyghurs and we're building up a DNA database to be able to track them down. Did you hear that? Thousands were interned in camps. Gives me chills to my bones to think that there's anyone in this world that is forced to live in a camp because their faith is a certain way. Now, I realize that certain extremist groups such as ISIS or M13 has ideology that promotes violence, but the ideology of the Uyghur Muslims is peaceful. They've lived in the region for hundreds of years. In fact, before this, have you even ever heard of them? Yet they're being thrown in camps. Those who have escaped report claims of sterilization of women. Those who escape report claims of separating children from parents. Yet, we aren't talking about it. In fact, the Sun Sentinel out of Florida had an article written just two days ago entitled, In Britain, Jews are leading the fight against oppression of China, China's Uyghur Muslims. The Jews are leading the fight against the Uyghur Muslims. Is the church really going to sit this one out? Are we really going to allow this type of behavior to go uncondemned? I realize that churches in America can't just fly over there and rescue them. I realize the United States government cannot send 200,000 troops over there to free them. I realize there are limitations and boundaries to what you and I can do. But there's no boundaries to you here in the United States. We must promote the freedom of the Uyghur Muslims if we do not want a repeat of war, World 
War II. It is absolutely essential. In other news this week, Malcolm X's family has released a letter from a former uh, NYPD officer that reveals that there is an NYPD and FBI link between the assassination attempt on Malcolm X and those organizations. Now, family members of Malcolm X revealed this letter via a news conference this week, and the letter was written by a now-deceased officer named Raymond A. Wood. The family stated that Wood had been compelled by his supervisors at the New York Police Department to coax two members of Malcolm X's security team into committing crimes, which ultimately led to their arrest just a few days before the assassination. Wood maintained that the arrests were part of a conspiracy by the NYPD and FBI to murder Malcolm X, who had become disenchanted with the Nation of Islam and left the black separatist group to create his own organization, the Muslim Mosque. This is a quote from the letter that Wood wrote. I was a black New York City undercover police officer between May of 64 and May of 71. I participated in actions that in hindsight were deplorable and detrimental to my own black people. Under the direction of my handlers, I was told to encourage leaders and members of the civil rights group to commit felonious acts. Wood said he was hired to infiltrate the civil rights group and to find evidence of criminal activity so the FBI could discredit and arrest his leaders. Now, Malcolm X in history is a controversial figure. Malcolm X was very much a a prominent voice of the black separationist movement. The black separationist movement's ideology was very simple. Black people need economic individuality. Or in other words, the black culture needs to be separate from white culture. Now, why is that? That's not because Malcolm X believed that blacks were necessarily superior to whites, but Malcolm X believed that whites were took advantage of blacks. Fast forward 60 years, it seems like Malcolm X might have been on to something. Now, how did Malcolm X die, you may ask? He was giving a speech and was shot 21 times. 21 times. If the FBI was involved in that, I want this case reopened too. This isn't just about having Malcolm X's family receive retribution. This is about certifying injustice. Or in other words, this is about calling evil, evil. Now, this isn't the only black leader that was connected to the FBI. We know that Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, uh, spied on by the FBI. We know that uh, J. Edgar Hoover authorized a letter being sent to Martin Luther King, blackmailing Martin Luther King and telling him to commit suicide. We know these things. We know that in 1971, a group of anti-war activists broke into an FBI office in the suburbs of Philadelphia, 
looking for evidence um, that they were spying on anti-war leaders, but this is what they found. They found a secret FBI uh, counterintelligence programs that had orders to disrupt, misdirect, and otherwise neutralize black power movements. It was all part of a scheme. Now, this is in the own words of J. Edgar Hoover. Now, J. Edgar Hoover, if you don't know, was the FBI director at the time. This is his own words. This is a quote from J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover was attempting to prevent, and this is when the quote begins, prevent the rise of a messiah that would unify and electrify the militant nationalist movement. To the FBI, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and even Fred Hampton. Most people don't talk about Fred Hampton because he wasn't alive long enough to become famous. But in Chicago, Fred Hampton was a rising star, a part of the Black Panther Party, who was killed, who was murdered. And we know that in this raid that murdered him, FBI officers were present. Is, am I saying that the FBI is corrupt? No, I'm not going there. I have no desire to go there. But what I am saying is that in a world where we spend so much time talking about racial reconciliation, in a world where we are destroying the statues of Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, and people like Robert E. Lee, who I believe there should not be a statue for Robert E. Lee. If you supported the Confederate uh, rebel army, an army that was so greedy, because keep in mind, the Confederates were not fighting necessarily because they hated the blacks. It was an economic hate. They wanted the power that came from controlling labor for free. If you gave me a hundred free, a hundred people of free labor, that's like handing someone a million dollars. And this wasn't just a hundred. This was tens and hundreds of thousands of people. That's what they were fighting for. There should not be a statue of Robert E. Lee. But as we focus on the statues, let us also acknowledge that the U.S. government was involved in destroying these black power movements. I would love to have seen how Malcolm X promoted the economic and spiritual growth of the black community. I hope that you would have liked to see that too. I do not believe that Malcolm X deserved to die. I do not believe that Martin Luther King deserved to die. I do not believe that Fred Hampton deserved to die. But why aren't we talking about something that is in the news this week that is so brutally and obviously unjust? This is not right. This week we saw a round two of GME's short squeeze. GME is the ticker symbol for GameStop. And I've been following the GameStop. In fact, my future brother-in-law made a hundred grand on the first short squeeze of GameStop, which by the way, I haven't talked to him, but next time I see him, I'm walking up to him and I'm going to give him a hug and say, Hey, you have courage. I, I cannot. 
so he was on Reddit. He sees that uh, basically what they're trying to do is squeeze out the uh, short sellers that were in the um, in the market. He puts ten grand on it, and within an instant, he has a hundred thousand. I would never do that. I would never put ten grand on a, on such a risky situation. So kudos to him. But today. Uh, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing round two of this. In fact, on Wednesday, the market closes at 4 p.m. And uh, there's a 30-minute post-market window where you can still get trades in. And in this 30-minute uh, post-market window, GameStop rose by over 100%. Now, of course, why is this, you may ask? Well, it's the end of February. When you short sell a stock, usually those come around at the end of the month. We see a similar thing happening with AMC today on Friday. Now, these individuals who were short-selling the GameStop stock were also battling the system. Now, those um, agencies, those hedge funds that were short-selling yesterday begin selling GME stocks to each other to falsify or to artificially lower the price of GameStop. There are 77 million shares of GameStop in the market today. 200 million shares were transacted Thursday afternoon. The market, the government, world affairs, and Christian leaders, all of them expose the same exact thing. We as humans are naturally selfish. So if I were to summarize this news from this week, don't be selfish. Don't try and cheat the system because you made a mistake on short selling. Don't try and hide the fact that the FBI was clearly involved in killing black leaders because you want us to think the FBI is good and just. Don't ignore the fact that the Uyghur Muslim group is facing a potential genocide just because we like to have our cheap Chinese goods. Don't go to a church just because the leader is charismatic. Go to a church where you're confident that pastor has self-control. Go to a church where you're confident that when you lose self-control, that you have people to talk to about it. It's really not that complicated. That's it for the Pastor Matt Show on this Friday, February 26. I'll be back next week with some more news from the week. And let's pray that the news isn't as selfish next week. Adios and have a great week.